It's one of the most um, underrated movies, I think, of all time, and we all know I like big statements like that, <laughs> is uh, Tom Cruise's The Last Samurai. Whatever you think of Tom Cruise's personal life, he's a good actor. He's a great actor. And one of the reasons why uh, I love it so much uh, is it's a story, and I think it's missed, it's a story about finding inner peace. It's a quest, really. And you see Tom Cruise's character develop in this way throughout the, the story. He's this American captain in the 1800s. He was involved in the uh, killing of American Indians in the uh, Indian-American War, and he killed many of them and done a good job. He was, he, was good, he was a good soldier, for lack of a better word. And so, you know, he's killed so many American Indians for the name of U.S. expansion, and so he is struggling with this, and he is not at peace with himself at the very beginning of the film. In fact, he is drinking himself to death. And he drinks so much that he runs out of money and he loses a job because he can't hold down a job because he's constantly drinking. And so he's so desperate that he takes a job from a colonel that he hates that directed him to kill the American Indians. And so he has great bitterness. But because he's so desperate for money, he wants to drink to soothe his conscience to find peace in any way he can, uh, he, he agrees to do this job where basically he is training villagers to, to use guns so they can fight against samurai so that Japan can do what it's want, do, does what it wants with technology. And so he is, he is training these soldiers. Long story short, in battle against the samurai, they capture him. And so over time, he comes to you know, be captured by the samurai. He becomes a part of them. He becomes a samurai. And uh, he loves their, their culture, their, their simple lifestyle, their moral principles. And so he actually kicks his drinking habit. He stops drinking and he finds peace by following the moral principles of the samurai. And uh, even at the end of the film, I mean, if you, it's over, I just checked, I couldn't believe it. It's like, it's like 20 years old. I, it just dates me there. But 20, 20 years old, this movie, so if you don't know the ending, I'm sorry, I'm just gonna ruin it for you. Um, but the, all the samurais die, um, but he survives. And so he is the last samurai, hence the name, the last samurai. But he has still found peace, though, in this way of life, the, living the moral principles of the samurai. He goes back um, to his wife, in, or yeah, I guess his wife in Japan at that time, his love interest in the film. And this is what the narrator closes with as he lives out his days in the way of the samurai. It says, and so the days of the samurai had ended nations like men, it is sometimes said to have their own destiny. As for the American captor, captain, no one knows what became of him. Some say that he died of his wounds, others that he returned to his own country. But I like to think that he may have found some small measure of peace that we all seek and few of us ever find. And I've always loved the ending of the movie because it does summarize this desperate human pursuit for peace. And we all want that so bad. Um, I know the feeling of um, not sleeping and having anxiety and turmoil in my heart that just tears me apart. It's nothing worse than that feeling of dread and guilt or shame, whatever it is, it just turns your stomach at night and you just can't go to sleep. And you would just do anything you could to take away that feeling. And I have felt that way many times in my life. And you, you just want anything to just get rid of it. Um, <coughs> The musician Alanis Morissette summarizes how I felt before very nicely. She says, peace of mind for five minutes, that's what I crave. That's what I crave. But if you only have peace of mind for five minutes, 
Is that really peace? Really? So in World War II, when the Germans and Americans stopped fighting for a day or two or a week, whatever, are they really at peace if they're just stopping for a day? If they're stopping for half an hour? If they're stopping for five minutes? I don't... I don't think that's really peace at all, is it? And we all know that deep down inside, deep in our core. So what, so what is peace? And how do we get peace? Especially in difficult times, stressful times, when we do something that's really evil and shameful. How do we find peace? And this is one of the most important practical questions you can ever ask yourself. Because if you do not have peace, you will eventually crack. Because you're just being, you're constantly having this war, this strife inside of you. And eventually it just tears you apart. And But thankfully, God's word provides a light into our feet. It's a lamp into our feet. And it tells us how we are to find peace in this life. And looking at Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... So justified as a past. Yes, people think, well, you know, I'm going to be judged by my works and so I'll be able to get to heaven. But no, we are declared righteous as in the final day when we have faith in Jesus. So it's a past reality that God has. It's a declaration that God gives us. And it's not by works. It's not by baptism. It's by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, therefore, here, and whenever there's a therefore, there's always a reason why it's therefore. Yeah, that's bad joke. Kind of cheesy. Okay. So he's summing up chapters 1 through 4. 1 and 2 were like Gentiles were bad. Non-religious people are bad. The, the Jewish people are bad. Religious people are bad. Everybody's bad. And so everybody's in trouble. And the Romans 3 and 4 says the way out of this trouble of sin and death is by believing and trusting in Jesus. And so we are declared righteous in Jesus as in the final day as a courtroom. And if you ever want another cheesy line or a cheesy thing to remember, to remember the word justified or justification, justified, you want to remember it this way, just as if I never sinned. Just as, just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. And so that's how God treats you in Christ, and that's what justification is all about. As if you've never sinned, that you were given all of Christ's righteousness, as if you've never done anything wrong, that's how God views you and treats you in Jesus Christ. And so because of that, we now have peace with God. Now, people hearing that who don't understand the background of this will say, well, hey, why do I need peace with God? I mean, if we were to say like, well, you're, we're now at peace with Germany. You're like, well, I mean, why would it, you know, you, you, you would say that as if like we previously hadn't had peace with Germany, which we haven't in the past. Now we are at peace with Germany. And so you wonder like, well, why, why, was there, why is there now peace when there wasn't previously? And someone might not think of themselves. I mean, it's weird to think of yourself at war with God. I mean, what a, what a terrible person to be at war with, right? That's, that sounds like a pretty bad deal there. So but why, why would someone be at war with God? And people have trouble understanding this, not understanding how anybody could be an enemy or be at war with God, because they do not understand the biblical view of God. That God is holy, that he is just, that he is not just holy and just, but that he is maximally holy and just. You know, people think of God as really kind of this cosmic grandpa in the sky who just spoils you and gives you everything you'd ever wanted. You know, oh, you know, I remember my grandpa, I mean, if you ever wanted to get away with something, he would let you go. You know, he just wouldn't, would never spank you. Grandpa would give you tons of toys and treats. And that's what people think of, of God as. And so they think, how could I be enemies with a cosmic grandpa? 
Why would I need a, to have peace with a God like that? And that is not the God of the Bible. And it's repeated over and over again in the book of Romans that God has wrath towards sin. This is repeated so much that it is repeated in every single chapter repeatedly. And so, so much so that commentators and scholars have said, look, this issue of wrath, this is a central problem of the book of Romans, and you see it in Romans 1.18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So it's such a repeated thing here, and it's in chapters 2, it's in 3, it's even in 4, and it's going to be even the chapter we're looking at. It's repeated in almost all the early chapters of Romans. And look at Romans 5, 9, really kind of makes this very clear. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, by the death of Jesus, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So that problem in Romans 1.18 has now been solved. It, that Jesus has saved us from the wrath of God. And again, Romans 5.10, it, it uses even more specific terminology here to talk about our status before coming to faith in Jesus Christ. It calls us enemies, not even frenemies, enemies with God. It says, For if while we are enemies, we were reconciled to God by His death, by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. So we are enemies before coming to faith to Jesus, we are enemies of God. Like, well, gosh, how can I be an enemy of God? That sounds so harsh and weird and strange to me. Why would I need to even be reconciled to God? I'm, you know, people think, well, I'm not that bad. I haven't, you know, whenever you ask somebody if they're a good person, they usually, you know, I haven't killed anybody. Like, that's some great accomplishment. No, that's, you know, and we have our issue of the heart, right? We get mad at people on the freeway, people that cut us off, people that say hurtful things. We think hateful and mean thoughts towards them. And Jesus said that's murdering somebody in your heart. So that's a heart thing. And you see, it's not just a sin against a person, but God is holy and moral and right and perfect and good. And so it's really a violation. It's really a treason against an infinite God. And if you sin against an infinite God, you deserve an infinite punishment. If you sin against the greatest possible being, you deserve the greatest possible punishment. We have fallen short of God's perfect standard. And so salvation and righteousness and this, this legal declaration of not guilty, that's the only way we get out of this is by faith in Jesus. Jesus and his work is given to us. And now we are justified. We have peace with holy God. And so we're only saved by, his, by the work and the life of Jesus. And Romans 5.1 makes it clear that it's through Jesus that we have this peace. We have peace with God through. It's through Jesus, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the only way we can have true peace is through Christ. That's why Jesus is not called the Prince of Love, the Prince of Holiness. He is called the Prince of Peace because he brings peace by his work and he spreads the peace to the ends of the earth. Peace with God. It says, Jesus is the only way to the Father. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way uh, through the Father but through me, but through Christ. And so there's no peace we can have unless it's with God. You cannot have true inner peace unless you are at peace with God, unless you are no longer an enemy of God. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it so well. God cannot give us a, a, a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it, because it is not there. There is no such thing. I have friends who um, don't believe in Jesus, maybe believe in a different version of God other than what the Bible teaches. They say, you know, I don't believe in your Jesus, Nate. I have peace. I don't believe in the God of the Bible, Nate. 
You know, I, I have some friends that are uh, agnostic or atheist. They don't believe in God. And they say, well, I have peace. They say, I have peace. Well, first off, when they say they, that they have peace, the type of peace that they are talking about isn't the type of peace that Paul is talking about here in Scripture. And I would say, first, that is not real peace. It is not real, true peace. Because you may feel like you're peaceful on a vacation, sipping champagne on a boat. I don't think I've ever done that before, but it just that's what I come to mind with comfort and rest is champagne on a boat, cruise. But if your cruise ship happens to be the Titanic and it's sinking, I don't know if that's really... Maybe your peace is completely misplaced there. Let's just say that. One of the weird things I do, and I, do, I have many eccentric habits, as some of you might know, but, uh, you know... I, so in my teenage and in my, even my 20s, I was quite the movie buff. I would watch every movie that came out. And then as you get older and you have kids, you find out I don't have any time to watch any of these movies anymore. And so what I do now is instead of taking up, I mean, I, mean, I saw Spider-Man in the movie theater with my kids. That's like the last movie I saw. And I had to bring the whole family with me. And with a uh, four and a six-year-old, that was a lot of fun. I mean, the movie was good. Don't get me wrong, but that's the kind of that's what you know I'm I'm at here in the dad zone. So what I do is I don't watch movies anymore. What I what I do is I read the movies I'm interested in. I read the Wikipedia article and the plot, and I'm like, oh, so I'm, I'm curious what these movies are all about. And so especially horror movies, I've not seen a horror movie in forever because I don't sleep at night when I watch those things. I have no peace. Uh, so I will just I always want to know like what the ending monster or bad guy is, and I'll watch the ending, and that's it. I do this all the time. It's a weird thing I do because I don't want to waste an entire two hours of my time watching a movie. This is going somewhere, trust me. So there's this recent controversial movie. I don't recommend it. I've never seen the whole thing. I've just read the summary and watched one of the scenes, um, a few of the scenes, but uh, it's, it's on Netflix. It's very controversial and I wanted to see what all the what all the talk was about. It was the movie Don't Look Up. And so uh, I wanted to see the ending. I mean, you know what the ending is. The meteor comes down and kills everybody. That's the ending. Everybody knows that. I think you can, it's kind of insinuated in the, in the preview. So I'm not ruining too much for you if you thought differently. But in this movie Don't Look Up, you know, they're predicting this meteor, meteor and they're just saying, oh, it's going to come. And no one like listens to the scientist guy. But what I found so interesting about this movie is that the one clip I did watch of it, and I just watched like a, like a small clip as I wanted to see how they did the special effects for this giant rock coming from the sky and hitting the planet. And uh, what they did is they just kind of had this cool graphic of the rock hitting the planet and like, you know, the dust comes and just kind of consumes everybody. You know, they didn't have to be that big, but if it's just like even, even like, a, like, a, like slightly big, it'll cause this huge wave and wipe everything out. So I wanted to see how people, like how the ending went on this particular point. I watched it and, the, and it was so interesting. The scientist and his friends, it's a very secular movie. I just want to say that. They're, they're trying to find peace about this giant rock hitting the planet and wiping out humanity. And they know it's going to happen because they've been studying it. They're trying to find peace, and, and they're very secular, so they're, they're trying to find peace in their own way. The way that they're trying to find peace is they're just trying to have small talk and conversation about you know, different types of coffees and things they like. And like, the table is shaking, 
And they're like, they're trying to pretend like there's no problem, like they're at peace with everything. And they're calmly talking as their table is shaking, trying to pretend like everything's okay, having shallow small talk. Well, that's not peace because the table is shaking and you're going to die. This, this, you know, it's the end of humanity. And so that is not true peace. And the reason why is because that, that, that peace is not grounded in objective reality. It's not grounded in fact. And for, for it to be true Peace, it not needs to be just feelings, but it needs to line up with reality. And uh, this is the peace of God here that Philippians uh, 4, 6 through 9 describes. This is the subjective peace. But in order to have the feeling of peace, there needs to be the fact of peace. And so Philippians 4 kind of describes this, this feeling of peace here. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things, what I have learned and what I have received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So this is the feeling of peace the peace of, of God, but what Romans 5, 1 is a fact of peace or objective peace, um, peace uh, with God. Peace with God is the factual part of peace. And Paul distinguishes between the feeling of peace and the fact of peace. And what, what people usually say is they have inner peace, they're talking about their feelings. It's a subjective thing. And, you know, a soldier can feel like a lot of peace if he's in a war and, and say, well, I have peace towards my enemies. But if the enemies are shooting bullets at him, that, that there has to be a reality lining up there. But the, you see, the reverse is true. This morning, if you feel like God is mad at you and you feel like God hates you and is angry at you, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you are at peace with God, whether you feel like it or, or not. It's an objective fact, and we need that objective fact in order to really have true inner peace. Well, then you're like, well, Nate, how can I feel this peace of God more? How do I feel inner peace more in my life? And the answer to that question is through the gospel. To think about what Jesus did on the cross to accomplish peace between us and the Father between us and God. And by reminding yourself of the gospel, this is, this is what brings peace, that you are no longer at war with God, that all of the wrath has been satisfied, all of the anger has been satisfied, there's nothing left for God to ever be angry. All God's going to show you is love, grace, and mercy, and you are at peace with Him. You have fullness of love, reconciliation, and acceptance in God forever and ever. Reminding yourself of that will bring peace to your heart. And that's what the meaning of the Hebrew and the Greek word for peace in the Bible, shalom or erene, it means this, this, this deep peace that connects with reality. So having this feeling of peace will be reinforced by looking to the fact of peace in Jesus Christ, what he's accomplished for us. And, you're, and it's, it's important to, to know that, that when you're at peace with God, I mean, it's God. He created everything. He's in control of everything. And so because there's peace with you and God, that means everything he's working out in your life is for your good. Everything. He's in control of everything. And he loves you. And so you can really, you know, hit the pillow at night and know like, okay, I'm safe. I am protected. I am taken care of in the arms of God. 
But I know the people, I've talked to people that are Christians that still struggle with this idea of peace because what they say is, you know, Nate, I have just committed the same sin over and over again, or I did something really terrible a year ago. And so is, is God just going to get mad at me and strike me down now I think of the Johnny Cash song. You know, you can go on for a I'm not going to sing. That's why we have Johnny here. It's not, go on for a long time. Sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. You know, I'm not going to try to sing. But, you know, you, you, you know, people think, well, you know, I did something bad. So sooner or later, God's just going to cut me down because of my sin. And that's a real worry people have is they say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But, you know, maybe if I do something really, really bad, I'm going to lose my salvation. And God's just going to come after me. He's going to cut me down. And here's one Christian group that actually says this and teaches this. I'm going to quote from them. They say, some truly converted people have fallen from grace. And the danger of doing so threatens every Christian. It's pretty scary. Pretty frightening. At any point, you're hanging over on hell's edge, basically. Is that peace? If war can break out like that, is that peace? Is that true shalom? No, that is not peace. If, if there's a, like two countries at war and they don't fight for one or two days or even one or two weeks, that still is not peace. And so there's something deeper going on because peace is not just a snap of the fingers, you're on the edge of hell kind of thing. No, peace is a continual and perpetual state that the believer is in trusting in Jesus. And if you could lose your salvation, you would. Because if your salvation is based on you, then it's gone. But if it's based on the works and the merits of Jesus Christ, then you can never lose your salvation. God's never going to cut you down. And the next verse, in the, in the Greek especially, confirms this, this beautiful truth. It says, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And the hope there doesn't mean like, oh, you, you know, you're not certain of something. You know, it means a conviction. We have a, we'd rejoice in the conviction of the glory of God. Now, in the Greek here, the perfect tense is used here repeatedly, meaning that this is something that's happened in the past that's a continual and perpetual result, meaning God's mercy, God's grace for you goes on. It continues on. It's a continual state you are in. Now, another perfect tensing, uh, tense here is the word access, the word for access. It's a continual access that you have to God. And for a first century Jew, having access to the holy God of the universe, just by believing in Jesus, by trusting in Jesus, given the whole priestly Levitical system, that would have been an absolutely just crazy and revolutionary idea. I mean, reading this as a first century Jew, just like, whoa, I have access to God in this way? Because all throughout the Old Testament, the message of the Jewish people is, hey, God's inaccessible and approachable. He is too holy to be approached. Right? I mean, Moses can't see God's backside. You're going to die. You can't get near the mountain. You're going to die. I mean, it's kind of the idea in Exodus 19. You know, you, you can't see God's glory. You can't get close to God's glory or else you're going to die. And if you think about this Old Testament system with the temple and the tabernacle and all these sort of things, it, all, all these kind of buffers did is a limited access to God so that an unholy people could keep their distance from a holy God. So the, a holy God is not safe for an unholy people. That's kind of the message of the Old Testament, Leviticus, you read it. And so you have the court of the Gentiles and the temple, the tabernacle kind of set up here, uh, the temple. And so what you have is it's kind of buffers to get you close to God. So, the, you know, the court of the women, 
women, you can only get so close. Court of the Gentiles and the court of the men get maybe a little closer, but you're still a buffer. And then you have the priests. And even for them to get into the holies, a holy place and the Holy of Holies, they had to go through these kind of laborious rituals and cleansing ceremonies to get in the holy place. And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And you know what's interesting is the high priest would only go into the Holy of Holies once a year at Yom Kippur. And so, yeah, I mean, these, these rituals were intense. These purification that they had to follow was very just exhaustive. And so they would make the sacrifice once a year in the Holy of Holies. And what's interesting is that when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he was actually, this is how holy God is, he was actually risking his life. He could be struck down by God and be dead. This was a real concern they had. And you see this in the Bible, and there's a lot of um, stuff in Jewish literature and tradition. But, but this, you see this in the Bible itself in Leviticus 16, 12 through 13. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. Very specific. And he shall bring it inside the veil. This is the Holy of Holies. And put the incense on the fire before the Lord, going before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat. The mercy seat is in the Holy of Holies that is over the testimony so that he does not die. Implication, if he doesn't do that, he's going to die. And so you have these priests who have bells on their garments here so that, you know, if you know if someone's dead, you don't hear those bells ringing anymore. It's an indication to you, and that's part of the reason why the bells were used. And some, the priest would, would die, and then they'd be able to tell. And later Jewish tradition has it that, and I don't know how much they can confirm this, but this is later Jewish tradition, that uh, when the high priest would die, they'd had a rope tied around him and so they could drag him out when he died. So this is, they're, they're taking risks by going before a holy God in the holy of holies. Access is not so easy in the, in the Old Testament picture here. So, but when Jesus dies, what happens? Well, you look at Matthew 27, 51, what immediately ha happens after the death of Jesus is this sort of access and it's expressed in this way. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It's not easy to, uh, to kind of tear that. I mean, people think of it as like, I don't know, like you think of drapes, you can easily tear those. No, this was thick. Uh, you, you, you can take a sword and bash it and not break it. And this thing is many inches thick here. And so the fact that, uh, that it was split here, it was torn in two, tells us this, this curtain was a supernatural activity of God after the death of Jesus. That's how thick this curtain was. You know, we think of curtains, like I said, it's very like, you know, I was looking at the curtains when I was writing the sermon. I'm like, oh, they're not like that. They're not like you can just kind of just peel those things apart. No, this is really thick stuff here that an earthquake. I mean, they, had, uh, they would have to have oxen going opposite directions to even make any tear in it. It's really impressively thick. So this being, being torn in two like this, this was a supernatural act of God after Jesus died to let us know, hey, because of the death of Jesus, we have access to the Holy of Holies because of what Jesus did. God is giving us access to the Father now. And this is how Ephesians 2.18 puts it. For through him, through Jesus Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So we have this amazing access. And so that means that all Christians, every single one of you believes in Jesus. You're all priests. 
every single one of you has a priesthood. It's called the priesthood of all believers. And this comes from 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 5. Don't just take my word for it. See, this is, this is, what, this is what Peter is saying to Gentiles, a Gentile church. Women, he's saying this to women. He's not just saying it to, to you know, male Israelites. He's saying this to people who believe in Jesus. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourself like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So yeah, all believers have the priesthood. All believers have radical and amazing access to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have this through faith and we receive all the benefits of Christ. And so if you think about it, if, we, if we're united to Jesus through faith and we receive all of his benefits, one of the things Jesus is, is he's our great high priest. And as a high priest has this unique access to God, we are united to Christ. And so in virtue of Christ being our high priest and us being united and we have access to God. Look what Hebrews 4, verses 4, uh, 4 14 to 16 says. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Our confession, we are united to Jesus. We are one in Christ. So we have access to God through him. This is why it's important that Jesus is our high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us in with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Not like, oh, should I, I'm afraid to go before God, you know, like the Israelites were, you know, uh, to, to get near the glory of God on, on, on the mountain. No, it's not trembling. It's not fear. It's not shaky hands. It's with confidence. With boldness is how you can translate. Boldness, you draw near to the throne of grace. We have radical access that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Not in fear and trembling, but with boldness and receiving grace and mercy. This is the greatest access to God. Jesus provides the greatest access to God to us. He provides to us access, the holy of holies, to God. You might be wondering, well, you know, how much, what does that mean? I mean, it's so theoretical. Like, what does that mean in a real life specific concrete example, Nate? You're talking about all this access. What does it mean for me? I mean, does that, uh, you know, how, how close and how vulnerable can I be with the holy, infinite God of the universe? How really close can I be to this, this guy? It wasn't a guy, but, you know, it's an expression. But yeah, how, how close can we really be with, with the infinite, transcendent God of the universe? And the Bible answers this in really specific and clear ways. Look at Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent, his son, uh, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption of sons, an adoption in the first century Roman world, you could not lose your status as an adopted son. You could disown your biological children, which pretty rough right there. That's a rough thing. But if you adopted your child, you could never, ever uh, uh, lose the, the sonship that you had with, with that child. It was forever. And so that's why the Bible uses the expression of adoption here. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is the Aramaic term, like, to, to put it directly, is Daddy. 
call the infinite, holy God of the universe something as close and intimate as daddy. Something a little child calls their father. That's the kind of closeness that you can have with the God of the universe. That's the kind of access that you can have with the creator and Lord of all things. The most powerful being in the universe, you can call daddy. That is mind-blowing. And I think of this analogy, uh, you have someone like, just it's a human analogy, so it only goes so far, but you have someone like the most powerful person in the world, the President of the United States, someone like that. You know, you can't walk into the President's office. I mean, secret security, there, a secret service is going to just like tackle you right away. You, you, can't, you can't say, get a word out. They're not even letting you get through all those barriers. It's just amazing. I mean, unless you know stuff about war or something or you're, you know, on his cabinet, you're not going to get to talk to the president. It, it, none of us could talk to the president in this room unless, I don't, unless you know something I don't know. <laughs> but what's so amazing to me is that President Kennedy had his small children. And they could just walk into his office and sit on his lap anytime. I think we have a picture of this. Um, yeah, look at that. Isn't that cute? So you have this most powerful man in the world, and, his, and, and they, you know, you know we, we can't get into this in, in the president's office, but his children can just come twaddling in. They played hide-and-go-seek in his office. They play games with him. The most powerful man in the world. And the reason is not because they knew about war or diplomacy or anything, but because they were his kids. That's why. They had this boldness and access to the most powerful man in the world because they were his kids. And that's the kind of access we have with God. We are sons and daughters of God and we have that anytime access. I love the way Tim Keller puts it. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water as a child, we have that kind of access. That kind of access. It's just amazing to think that the infinite God, whose thoughts will never be even able to understand in eternity, the most powerful being, Lord of the universe, that, that we can cry out to him as daddy at 3 or 4 a.m. when we're struggling, when we're just, we're in pain, we're in grief. We can reach out to him anytime, any place, no matter how low you've gone, wherever you are at, it, at in life, no matter what you've done or where you've been, you can cry out to him and say, daddy, I need your help. I need to talk to you. And you only have this access, this amazing access through trusting Jesus. And so if you haven't trusted it, you want this access to the God of the universe, you trust in Jesus Christ this morning. It'll change your life. And it'll bring peace because the fact that you have this relationship with an infinite God, an all-powerful being, you can call him daddy, that he loves you and you're his kid and he works all things out for your good, that truth brings you just unimaginable peace as Paul would say, the peace that surpasses understanding. And if you want that peace this morning, I hope and I, and I pray that you would reach out and trust, believe, and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior and take communion with us. Let's pray.